This is the Coach Iron Mike Keenan Podcast. Welcome to the Iron Mike Keenan Podcast, the first edition. Scott Morrison alongside the Coach Iron Mike. And how are we doing, Mike? We're doing really well, Scott. I'm looking forward to this podcast discussion with you over a number of issues, topics, and of course experiences that we both have had along the hockey path. Well, you think about it, you got one guy here who once upon a time used a typewriter, and we'll explain what that is later. And you used a chalkboard once upon a time, and chalk was high tech back in the day, and now here we are lost in cyberspace. We are, and we got those uh, fancy vis- video presentations for coaches and whiteboards and and uh, exceptional video results. So times have changed, but uh, I think the topics have remained the same. We'll do a little catching up and uh, further introduction, but just for broader strokes right now, let's talk about what our mission is with this podcast. It's going to be different than a lot of them that are out there already. Well, I think we can bring our experience uh, amongst uh, many of our associates in the game, players, coaches, managers, owners, and I think uh, bringing a perspective uh, about the game today as a, compared to uh, how it was played when I was a little bit younger, uh, although I coached recently in Russia and China. And I think that uh, we want to give some insights into uh, what made uh, the players of my era successful and the game successful and how it compares to the game today. And we're going to have guests every week beyond this week, some that were yes, closer we're, to we're, you and some that weren't, but no holds barred. We're going to give them all a shot, <laughs> take a shot at me. Uh, uh, they were ironized by myself, and now we're going to give them a chance to reciprocate. And I think uh, that'll be interesting for our fans because we'll bring in the superstar players that uh, I had the privilege of coaching, to the grinders, to the fighters. And as I said, the broad perspective of uh, players involved, that meaning people involved in the game from trainers to managers, coaches, uh, the whole gamut and perspective. I think we can, through our experiences, uh, which has been very plentiful in various locations on various platforms, uh, bring a lot of insight to the game and, and to the public of how the game was played and how it's being played today. Okay, we'll get into a little hockey talk in a minute. Maybe just uh, we should offer up our resumes for those who aren't entirely familiar. Yours is pretty uh, major and significant and well-known with Stanley Cup wins and Canada Cups and uh, coaching at, what, eight NHL teams? Eight NHL team, Canada Cup, your international play, junior championship, university championship, uh, American League championship, Gagarin Cup championship, um, so some TV work too. We and throw a little bit of TV work in there with you and some other great broadcasters. So uh, yeah, we got a, a like a wide variety of interests and and platforms to work from because it covers the entire gamut, even from Forest Hill Collegiate here in Toronto uh, to a multiple number of coaching experiences. And my background initially in newspapers at the Toronto Sun. A beat writer, hockey columnist, a sports editor, did a lot of TV during that time, went to Sportsnet, did some TSN work at that point in Hockey Night, went to Sportsnet in 2001, 
2006, I moved to Hockey Night again. And uh, that year, I was honored by the Hockey Hall of Fame with the Elmer Ferguson Award, which yes, was you were. a huge moment. Congratulations on that. And at the same time, we can share the, the experiences of being fired many times as well. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and uh, went back to uh, Sportsnet and then merged again with Hockey Night. And uh, now I sit here as one of the... Uh, many members of the growing legion of Sportsnet alumni, let's put it that way. And uh, both of us being part of that as well. Yes. Uh, certainly a longer tenured uh, uh, employee, but uh, both of us having that experience. So now, just recent years, you've want, gone through a battle, and uh, thank goodness, doing really, really well. Let's yeah, I'm really healthy, us, and it was uh, uh, something that we should make uh, young men aware of, uh, a PSA blood test, which is a very simple blood test to diagnose the possibility of prostate cancer, which I uh, happened to have and and uh, had some great uh, medical attention, both in the United States and Canada, and made a decision. There's uh, three or four different options. You can have uh, surgery, you can have uh, radiation, and you can have brachytherapy. Well, the great doctors here at Sunnybrook, Hans Chung and his staff, his team, uh, eventually did the procedure on me, and that's why I'm really Iron Mike now, because uh, uh, they insert radiation in pellets, and those pellets never dissolve. And, and uh, the funny part of it is uh, you can have from 80 to 120 uh, pellets put in you, and after the operation, I asked Dr. Chung, how many pellets do you put in? And I said, I hope it was 99 so I could be a superstar forever. And he <laughs> said, no, unfortunately, he's 88. And I said, oh, I'll take Lindros. That's what, that works for me, too. So, yeah, it's, a, it's something that uh, uh, we should uh, help uh, make and build awareness throughout the world. And certainly uh, uh, the attention I had uh, from the medical team at Sunnybrook, young doctors from the University of Toronto, uh, Hans Chung and, as I said, his team. Uh, but there are, there are other options, and it depends on the severity. I was very fortunate I caught it early, how, how and was that it therapy was uh, an option for me. How was it caught? That was May of 2018. Yeah, and it was. It was a, a simple blood test. Uh, Dr. Judy Floyd in, in Florida uh, had an annual test, if not semi-annual, and, and she's I was uh, kind of made aware that my PSA went up, and she said, we better have it examined, and then you have uh, biopsies done and, and to check and, and see what the severity would be, and from there you follow up with what the options might be for you as an individual. And I read a story that one of your doctors in Florida had actually been at Game 7 in 94. Exactly. One of the options, a Russian doctor wanted to do surgery, and uh, he studied in, in Texas uh, at the university. He was well-known. And then another doctor I went to see, I wanted to explore the options, was radiation. And the, I walked in, the doctor says, I know you. And I said, how do you know me? I said, this is in Fort Lauderdale. He says, I'm a New Yorker, and I was at Game 7. I said, okay, that sounds great. And then I came to further uh, investigate the options here in Canada uh, at both... Uh, Barry uh, in the at the hospital with Barry, and then they uh, deferred and, and said you're more of a candidate. Go to Sunnybrook, has done the most brachytherapy operations in the world of any hospital in the world, and and great care and and uh, and uh, quick uh, attention to uh, the problem. And and uh, fortunately, it worked out well as a one day procedure. And of course, it takes a year to recover. Uh, without a great deal of pain, 
and uh, and I'm very healthy now and very energized and feeling great. Great news. Because you're a multimedia superstar now, you've got a book in the works as well. No publication date as of yet, but our good friend Jay Greenberg, who covered you in Philadelphia and other stops along the way, tell us about the book. Yeah, the book is a tell-all to a certain extent, um, most all. And uh, it was funny, back uh, in the 80s when Jay was covering us as the beat writer, I knew that he was a very good writer, but he also knew that he had the comprehensive knowledge of everything that was going on behind the scenes. So I would defer quite often to him. Uh, I'm not going to answer that question right now, Jay, but it'll be a great question to ask and put it in the book. So decades later, he's freed up, I'm freed up. Uh, I didn't know if I wanted to write this while I was still in the business. Uh, I've built a number of uh, dislikes amongst uh, our peers and, and our uh, so-called friends and uh, thought it would, I'd wait until uh, this portion of my, of my career, of my life. And, and uh, a lot of background stories, information that no one knows about, and uh, it's going to be presented in a very professional uh, way. Uh, but uh, we've had great cooperation from players and from hockey members and at all various levels that uh, will participate in the book, and I think it'll be an interesting read. And uh, certainly some of the feedback we've had from uh, the millennials to uh, the older gang that uh, they're very interested in in what uh, transpired in, in different situations. Well, I've read some of it, and uh, <laughs> it, it will sell, trust me. <laughs> a lot of good stuff in there. Okay, let's fast forward to today, and uh, your thoughts on the game. You've seen it evolve over the years from, you know, starting out in the 80s with the, the Flyers and uh, the various incarnations of how this game has developed. What do you think about today's game? Uh, I'm mixed about it. Uh, I can tell you it was a year ago uh, that I watched the f for the first time Game 7 of the 1994 Stanley Cup Championships and it was vicious. It was uh, incredibly physical. Uh, the refereeing uh, was uh, very lenient. They let the players decide and that game does not exist today. That was extremely entertaining. Uh, very uh, engaging. I think it uh, galvanized the hockey community when the New York Rangers won. Uh, it was Mr. Bettman's first year as as the uh, commissioner, and uh, it was reflection of uh, of an older attitude. The game evolved over time, certainly from uh, the days in Philadelphia where the entire payroll was two million dollars. Mark Howe was making two hundred thousand dollars at the top end of things and we had superstar players like Rick Tockett who's now a great coach making $80,000 a year uh, so they evolved and over time the, 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 the money became a part of it uh, certainly uh, it's reflective in the game today where some of the and it's uh, also reflection of the, of the salary cap where you're uploaded with four or five guys or taking most of the salary and then you're filling in with the rest. So the composition of a team is a little bit different. And the, the rules continue to change in terms of uh, it's being described as a faster game, better athletes. Uh, the better athletes and trained athletes I, I concur with, I agree with. The faster game, uh, 
because the puck goes north and south from goal line to goal line doesn't necessarily in my mind make it faster Bobby Orr has stepped and said we should put the red line back in for two reasons uh, one uh, to prevent some of the hard collisions that happen in neutral zone with full speed and secondly and I agree with him on this that uh, quickness could be quickness in thinking not necessarily puck movement and uh, there's been times where we're going end to end but all it is is posting up deflecting uh, on the forecheck hunt and posting up opposite side and doing the same thing so and the physicality is not quite overall as mean as it was or as intense as it was and I think that's a part, passionate part of the game. Hockey is a very passionate game and I don't want to take that out of the game at all. No, I don't disagree and it, it feels like sometimes that it gets so fast that it becomes disconnected. Don't you think? It does and that's what I was thinking. The thinking part of the game, that that's a very difficult process. Wayne Gretzky, the Maryland, I'm talking about the top centermen uh, historically, the best players could think the game and think it at a high speed. And that for me was speed to make those decisions about puck movement, particularly in the neutral zone, in the attack or defending, coming back and being able to read the play, read and react. So, uh, you know, the art and science of, of the game has to me, in my mind, still remain to make it exciting. And and you're, you're correct. It, it, there seems to be at times uh, a vanilla approach to it. To me, everybody's playing the same or a lot of the games are the same, and that takes the excitement out of the game. If you could make one change, what would it be? Well, the one when I put the uh, red line back in, so I want to see I think Scott who, can, that too. Who, can, who can think, who can think the game better than the other players. Not necessarily the most fit, the fastest skater, uh, but the, the 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 quickest thinker. I want to see that in the game again. Now, one thing we've seen this year, and it's happened at various times over the years where it seemed to get a, a ton of them, and then they'll go a few years and there's not many oh. coaching changes. Well, there have been coaching changes for a variety of reasons this year, but a bunch of guys who have been fired and prominent names like a Babcock and a Laviolette and a Gallant, when you think of the success he had in a short time in Las Vegas. So, what, what's going on with all these changes? Well, sometimes those, uh, those positive results are detrimental because uh, we won the Stanley Cup. Expectations. In, 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 that's part of it. The, we won the Stanley Cup in uh, New York, and, of course, uh, we'll get into that in the book, but it was a, a, a dismissal to a certain extent. And, and in Philadelphia, the, the expectations of, I don't know if you recall, that Mr. Snyder said, if you make the playoffs... I'll kiss your butt at center ice. And late in the season, we're in first place overall, going to win the President's Trophy. And he comes running down the hall, and, and Mr. Snyder is, is all exasperated. We had a poor game in, in Philadelphia. And he said, this team's not prepared for the playoffs. I said, Mr. Snyder, you want to kiss my butt now at center ice or a little bit later? <laughs> because you said if we made the playoffs, you'd just be ecstatic. And now you're worried, and we are going to end up in first place overall. Don't worry, the team will be ready. Of course, we're in the Stanley Cup Finals. And, but building expectations, then Pelly Limber was killed the following year. We go to the finals again, then they get fired. But to the firings, uh, impatience, the expectations, uh, part of the rationale is 
for example, St. Louis Blues in last place. You can't change place, players anymore either. That was my next point. Last place team ends up winning the Stanley Cup. Last place in January, win the Stanley Cup. You can't make the changes for players like Cliff Fletcher used to do uh, come prior to the trading deadline because there's no flexibility with the cap. So there's a variety of number of reasons why the changes are taking place. And also... Uh, the empowerment, the entitlement of the younger players, uh, they make a lot of money. And uh, I want them to continue to be respectful. The highest paid players I had, and at the time, uh, were the best players. Wayne Gretzky making $7 million a year, Mark Messier making uh, $7 million a year, Chris Jelios, Chris Pronger, Al McGinnis, Brett Hall, Brandon Shannon, and I can go on and on, as you know. But the players making the money have to stay respectful. Money is the business part of it. Do your business in the off season, get your agent to do the business for you. But when you're a hockey player, come to the rink as a hockey player, not a businessman. And uh, for me, I think there's, there's some impact for the coaches today that they're treading lightly on what demands they might put on the personnel or on the players. Now, sometimes we as media, we as fans, say fire the bum he's no good exactly. they need a new coach and it's a very cavalier approach obviously it's because it's a real life situation even though it's to sports but you've been on it's, both it's sides personal. of it what's when it you feel get like? fire, it, it hurts and it's personal because you feel that you you've let the yourself down you let your family down you let the team down uh you didn't deliver what the what was expected of you and there's there's so many uh variables involved that are under your control it could be injuries it could be travel it could be uh um, particularly uh as you described the media uh promoting it and when it's not deserved or or some dislike or the politics so there's a lot of variables involved uh, that displace uh, and have uh, coaches dis displaced unjustly. The statistics tells us over time, if you're consistent with your coaching staff, if they're competent, if they're capable, if they're educators, if they can communicate, then over time, consistency uh, is a better formula than quick knee-jerk knee reaction dismissals. Now, there's been a lot of talk this season for various reasons that we don't have to get into the particular cases, but about the relationships between players and coaches. Yeah. Now, you were a fiery coach. You weren't afraid to get in the face of your so players. I was told. How <laughs> would Mike Keenan fare today? And what do you think the relationship should be like between a player and a coach today? Well, I think there's got to be an element of respect. And some of the instances you're talking about uh, – You've got to be very careful the way that you present that to the player. And uh, some examples that uh, engaging young and experienced players to give responses uh, to the rumor or make opinions is inappropriate because they don't have the experience, they don't have the command of, uh, of the rest of the team. I could put it in the context of a teacher which, when I taught. I, I'm not going to ask the ninth grader to tell a grade 13 student uh, how to uh, promote or how to, how to uh, approach a certain topic. I'm gonna to defer to the more experienced people and let the younger person learn from that experience of the older, of the older people. That's one example. But I think uh, in my own relationship, yes, I was very firing. 
uh, fiery. But I think more importantly than anything else, show them that you care more than show them what you know. And if they feel that they you care for them in a real humanistic way, then you can be as demanding and tough as you like as long as you are respectful. And at the same time, you know, I've had superstars that said that sometimes I, I just wanted to give you a punch. But there are other times I, as I grew older and understood and, and that process of teaching me to win is not is not an easy formula. It's very, very, very difficult. And it takes a learning curve and a learning process to understand what it takes in the context of the NHL to win the Stanley Cup. It's not average. If you're average, you're out. It's way beyond average and what the expectations would be to be successful. So there's John Tortorella, for example, is a fiery coach, but he's got the command of his team and the respect and that's one example. Then you can go to the other end of the spectrum where somebody is the, the player's coach. And uh, that can work too. But you have to be real. You have to be yourself. And uh, sometimes you have to make tough decisions. And as long as you can explain yourself, I think that uh, you can continue to have success uh, with the best players. So I was going to ask you, what does it take to coach at the pro level for a long time? And do you, do you have to evolve? Did you evolve? Yeah, you have to evolve for sure. You have to understand human nature. Uh, a great quote that I like to embrace is, uh, it's best to understand to be understood. It's your job to understand. You're the teacher. You're the leader. You're the professor. You're uh, the person in charge. And as long as you can make the adaptation, because culturals change, uh, generations change. Um, as I referred to my first days in Philadelphia, I was a young man. I was 34 years old. And some of my players are very close to my age, if not older. I think Cookie Dvorak was older than I was. I don't remember him. Yes, I do. And uh, so that is a process. And then I went to Chicago. Uh, certainly still a young man. I was in my early 40s, uh, 41 or 42, and and uh, make the adaptation from coaching older players to younger players. So it's a real a dynamic uh, reality for the coach. Your age, your evolution as a coach, your ability to communicate, your ability to adapt to di- different generations and needs of different people, and the age group. You have people on your team that are 18, as Peter Zezel was, God bless his soul, to, and that was a really young group. Mark Howell was the oldest at 29, but I've coached teams where there was an 18-year-old and a 39-year-old. So, you know, uh, there, now you've got a father-son relationship in the dressing room in terms of age gap. So there's a lot of variables that are involved. Uh, but uh, to coach over a few decades, uh, that adaptation has to be in place. And Rick Bonus is the, the, the newest example of five decades coaching either as an assistant coach or head coach. So he's obviously he's a good man. He's been able to... Uh, make certain changes in his own evaluation of himself and also the context in which he's working and the players that uh, he's coaching today and what they expect. 
You coached in uh, Russia and China, part of the KHL. What was that experience like? That was a great experience, a, 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 a life-changing experience to go into a country and an environment. It wasn't fancy Moscow, St. Petersburg. I was in Magnitogorsk and for the older gang, that's Dr. Zhivago country in, in the Ural Mountains where nobody could speak English. And you had to make the adaptation. Thankfully, I had a great translator to begin with, Eddie Vorovyev, who played for Dave King and Paul Maurice. Uh, I'm sorry, did work with Paul Maurice, played for Dave King. So they, they had, he had North American experience. His dad was a legendary coach in Russia, but he had gone to Germany. He was fluent in English. Uh, great help. And uh, he, he uh, really, uh, I think, cemented the relationship with myself and, and Mike Polino, who I he took with me. Tommy Buer was a, a Swedish goaltending coach. That was the coaching staff from the first year when we won. And uh, after time, though, Ilya stopped translating. I turned and I said, why aren't you translating? He said, you know enough Russian now to speak to them and communicate with them. And then they said, they just look at your eyes and they know what they're supposed to be doing. So uh, <laughs> I bet that, that same approach was still intact. But yeah, yeah your eyes and, and, translate and then, all languages. Exactly. <laughs> so the, the 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 thing that was different was certainly the context of the game, of uh, uh, the of uh, the play, a bigger ice surface, which is, you know, the the Olympic ice surface. Uh, the the travel was uh, from coast to coast, which could be in a thirteen hour plane ride. The Croatia was in the far east, and and the Blastok, it was in the west, and Vladivostok in the east. So. Uh, 62-game schedule, never play back-to-back games. Uh, the training was expected to be twice a day often. Uh, living in the Baza, keeping your team in a different situation. It was, uh, in some respects, and the context of living in Magnitogorsk was like going back to the 50s. So it was a time warp, but a really incredible experience. And then, of course, uh, we won the championship and and uh, and then won it again uh, in my third year. Um, so I think that was a really special experience. And the Russians are are very engaged in the game of hockey. They love hockey. They 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 brought the country together by developing this hockey league. And hockey is shown on the Hockey Channel from noon hour to midnight every day. They show every game. And uh, they get to cheer for their local city, and they get to cheer for their national team, which is still huge. When I first went there, everybody knew me because of 87, Tikhanov, and the, the, the exposure I had. And then 72, and even today, when there's downtime for the games, they play Canadian. It was called Canadian hockey. They didn't call it hockey. They called it Canadian hockey when they started in Russia. And they show the Whippy Dunlops winning, and they show the 72 series, the 87 series, uh, the juniors playing at the so they're really uh, respectful of Canadians and the Canadian hockey. They from time to time will show U.S. hockey or Czech Republic or Finnish and Sweden, but that relationship built there. And then China was a different story. Uh, recommended by the Russians, uh, I was because uh, the Chinese came and the Russians said we're going to have the Winter Olympics. Who can help us? And they said a guy named Keenan. And I, I jokingly said to the Russians, well, you, you selected a Canadian because if it gets really messed up, you can blame a Canadian on the Chinese debacle rather than a Russian. 
So we've got KHL, we've got NHL, we've got Canada Cups, World Cups, World Championships. We've got lots to talk about this uh, for the remainder of this season and through the playoffs on a weekly basis. So we'll be back for podcast number two, I assume. This was fun today. It was fun. I enjoyed it. And uh, again, uh, thanks for your patience to listen to these long-winded stories and no, they're all responses. Good. But, uh, so yeah, podcast we, two, got, we'll be back. a lot. Uh, yeah, and... Uh, uh, of course, we're going to, as we said at the onset of this of uh, uh, this conversation, that we're going to invite uh, many of our our friends and uh, from various levels of the game and some part-time some enemies too. Uh, totally, we're going to give them all an opportunity. Well, we'll be back, and uh, we promise a very special guest to kick off podcast too. Talk to you then.